God our Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in one name, we come to you this morning and we worship you. We thank you uh, for the great gift of your grace in your Son, Jesus Christ, who was willing to come and to die for us. And one day, we look forward to standing uh, before you, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before your throne, to enter into your eternal kingdom forever and ever. And we look forward to that. That's our hope in which all of our life is grounded. And I pray this morning as we study now how to live out our life here and now, it would always be in that perspective of the eternal, of what's coming. So we ask you to help us now as we study your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. Open your Bible, if you will, with me to Ephesians chapter 4. I want to read just the first six verses here in Ephesians 4 this morning. You can follow along in your Bible, or if you want to watch on the screen, you can follow the words as I'm reading them there. Paul here continues his letter to these Ephesians, and he says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, over of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. And we'll stop there for this morning. It's great to be back here. It's great to be in the book of Ephesians. And can you believe it? We've made it to chapter 4. We are flying through this book, right? We started back in October, I think it was. And I am excited this morning to have finished the first half of Ephesians and now going into the second half. I've said it before as we've walked through this book, and let me just say it again. Uh, The first three chapters of Ephesians are what we call the indicatives, who we are in Jesus Christ. It's very doctrinal, it's very lofty, it's very exalted. The second three chapters, chapters four, five, and six, are what we call the imperatives. It's written in a a tense, an imperative tense, or commands. It's how to live out who we are. And so some people say it like this. Chapter 4, verse 1, marks the transition from positional to practical truth, from doctrine to duty, from principle to to practice, okay? And I think you're going to pick up on that pretty quick as we walk through these next three chapters. You'll see how that plays out and how the Christian is to live. Now, before we even get into these next four chapters, there are a couple things that we need to talk about, a couple things that we need to understand. The first one is this. Paul is very intentional in putting the order of this book in the way that he did. We must first know who we are in Christ Jesus before we are told what to do in Christ Jesus. In other words, we have to be convinced of our identity before we can live it out well. And as you probably know, 
identity is a constant struggle in our day and age. We, we all struggle with identity, and I think especially our young people today struggle with identity in the digital world in which they live. And I hope you know by now, or at least that you are figuring out, that Facebook and Instagram, Snapchat, is not reality. What you see there and the identities that are portrayed there are the best of people at their best. How do I know that? Because I've watched my daughter take 15 selfies before she finally gets one that's good enough to go on Instagram, right? And so you see her at her best, right? You see it, the persona that she wants to give, right? It's been doctored. It's been filtered. It's been picked out in a certain way to, to project a certain personality. You don't see the meltdowns, right? You don't see the dirty bathroom. You don't see the angry faces. You don't see the disastrous bedroom. We, we get our sense of identity from something, and sadly today, many people get their identity from things that are very shaky and very false. And so Paul here is trying to combat that in those first three chapters to give us an identity. And the identity that Paul wants to give us is this. You were chosen. You were predestined. You were loved. You were redeemed. You were adopted, you were sealed, you were given inheritance, you were given power through Jesus. And when we begin to grab our identity from those first three chapters, we have a solid foundation now on which we can stand, not a shaky foundation, a solid one. So when we go into chapters four, five, and six, we can live it out because we know who we are. Once we know who we are in Christ and we begin to live out of that confidence, what we discover is that we have a power that was outside of ourselves that has been given to us now, the power of the Holy Spirit, to live out these commands of 4, 5, and 6. I will tell you this. If you try to live out the commands of chapters 4, 5, and 6 without having chapters 1, 2, and 3, you are going to be discouraged disheartened, and ultimately you might even be at risk of losing your faith altogether because you can't do it on your own. You can't do it without knowing who you are in Christ and having the power of his spirit, okay? So we needed to know that before we go into these chapters. The other thing that we need to know, the second thing that I think is, <laughs> this is important. Chapters four, five, and six are incredibly practical and because of that, I need to warn you that at times they become very painful. I use chapters 4, 5, and 6 in my counseling ministry all the time. And virtually every time I do, I am convicted. As a counselor, I'm convicted. I can't tell you how many times between counseling cases um, I've just picked up my phone and I will text my wife and I will say, honey, I love you. And I'll get this text back from her and she'll say, you're counseling today, aren't you? <laughs> yep, I am. And I'm reading this and I'm applying this and I'm convicted that I need to do a better job of, of living this out. These are some practical things uh, that we're going to, to go through here. So I'm reminded of how often I fall short of these commands, and you might be reminded too as we walk through here. And so as we travel through these chapters, 
if you suddenly have the feeling that I am speaking directly to you in front of hundreds of other people, uh, rest assured, it is not my policy to target an individual from the pulpit, okay? Those are face-to-face conversations. Probably what you're feeling is the same conviction that I felt as I go through these chapters, and maybe the Holy Spirit is causing you to struggle with some of the thing, same things that, that I have struggled with and that the church of Ephesus uh, struggled with. So the Word of God is it's, it's very personal. It's, it's very specific. Therefore, it's very painful at times. So I just want you to be prepared for that, okay, uh, as we walk through these chapters. So with that backdrop, with that kind of an understanding, uh, let's jump into these verses and and see what God has for us today. Um, And at the risk of really slowing slowing things down, I'm just going to tell you right up front, we're only going to get through about halfway of verse two, all right? I really thought we'd get to verse six. Okay, verse one. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, and we can really stop right there. Anytime you see the word therefore, and you've heard this before, anytime you see the word therefore, you need to ask, what's it there for? And what Paul is pointing to there is he's pointing back to the three chapters he's just concluded. Everything that he's just written about your identity in Christ from those previous three chapters, he's saying, therefore, because of that, Now, he says, I'm going to urge you to walk worthy of that. Walk out who you are. Live out who you are. When we adopted our youngest son, we gave him the identity of an auto. Okay? And so now, uh, in the context of the family known as the autos, he lives out that identity. In the very same way, When you took on the identity of Christian, you now, in the context of the family known as Christians, you live out that identity, okay? You you live out who you are, but we need to be told, what does that look like? I have to tell my son, this is what autos do. Sometimes we need to be told, and this is why Paul writes, this is what Christians do. This is the culture. This is the behavior, We need to know how to conform to that. So Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, am urging you to do this. He's in prison. His walk with the Lord cost him his civil freedom. He's now writing to them from behind bars. And he doesn't say that to discourage the Ephesians. He doesn't say that to say, you're all going to end up here in prison with me. What he's saying is, I'm living the real thing. He's adding validity to what he's writing. He said, I have lived it out to the point I've been arrested for that, and I'm okay with that because this is how the Christian lives. It's not always easy. It's sometimes going to bring suffering, but this is what it looks like. And so our Christian lives, our behavior, Paul wants us to know, is a response to the love of, and the grace of chapters 1 through 3 that God has shown to us. I saw this quote, and I think it really sums it up like this. Christ has done so much for me, the rest of my life is a P.S. to his great work. I love that. Christ has done so much for me, 
the rest of my life is just a P.S. to his work. Christ came to earth for you. Christ lived for you. He lived in obedience for you. Christ went to a cross for you. Christ rose from a grave for you. Christ ascended to heaven for you. Christ gives you new life when you repent and when you believe in him. And as a result, Christ saves you from eternal punishment. He gives you a hope of a future with him, what we just sung about. Now, if Christ will do all of that for you, then what he asks of you as he brings you into this family of faith, that you walk in a way that's worthy of that calling. You walk in a way that lives out, shows deference to that calling. And that word worthy there that you see in your Bible... Uh, that word means equal weight. It means something is in, in balance, okay? So given what you have been given in Christ, the grace and love that you've been shown, how do you in balance live that out in a, in a proper response? Christians shouldn't be out of whack. But the sad reality is, as you well know, sometimes the daily lives of Christians are out of whack with their profession. And I'm not talking about Christians all over the world. I'm not necessarily talking about Christians in America. I'm not talking about Christians uh, just in the state of Florida. I'm talking about Christians in Sarasota. Sometimes Christians here, shocker, get our lives out of whack, right, with what we profess. We go to church on Sunday morning, but on Monday morning we cuss like a sailor. We religiously, no pun intended, we religiously bow our heads and we pray before every meal and then we lift our head and out of our mouth we spew gossip and slander about all those people we don't like. We nod in holy agreement when we talk about self-control, but then you put that Christian on a basketball court or in a fishing tournament or out on Fruitville Road and you watch all that self-control go, <laughs> right? You know it. That's why we laugh about it. We get it. Sometimes our Christian walk is out of balance. And so what Paul here is trying to do is say, our practical living... Uh, must match our spiritual posi uh, position or really in the end, if they don't match, you might as well give up every evangelistic effort you're putting out there because who wants to follow after a hypocrite? When, when Gandhi was the spiritual leader of India, someone once asked him uh, about some, missionary, or some missionaries asked him this question. What is the greatest hindrance to Christianity in India? And his reply was, Christians. I hope this never said of Bethelites. I, I hope what's said of us is something like Philippians 1.27 where it says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Or I hope that what's said of Bethelites is Colossians 1 verses 10 and 11. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, 
bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience and joy. Wouldn't it be neat if when people talked about us at Bethel, they would say, you know what? They're an odd bunch, but they walk their talk. They walk their talk. You can go to that church and you won't find hypocrisy there. What they say they believe, they live it out. Wouldn't that be neat? Wouldn't that be awesome? I think that's what Paul has in mind here when he starts in, on chapter four. Remember, why were you chosen and called into relationship with God to begin with? Well, back in chapter one and in verse four, Paul says that we would be holy and blameless before him. That we would live out practically what we already are positionally. Okay, so what does that look like, Paul? Help us understand. Well, look at verse 2. He says, this is what a walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called looks like. He says, it is with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Well, those two verses are loaded. That's why, that's why we're not going to get very far in verse 2. They're also very convicting, at least for me personally. First, Paul says, to walk in a walk worthy of the man of your calling means we walk in humility. Humility is a lowliness of mind. It means a lack of arrogance. It means a sense of a modest opinion that I have of myself. It's interesting to me that when John Wesley was preaching these verses, he observed that neither the Romans nor the Greeks had a word for humility. Didn't even exist. Paul had to make up a word here to convey to the Ephesians what he was trying to get across with this idea of a lack of arrogance. The concept was so foreign and so abhorrent to a Roman mind and to a Greek mind, they had no term to describe it. And so Paul comes and he says, here's what humility is. It's the opposite of pride. Okay, so they were supposed to have lots of pride. It's the opposite of pride. Friends, I don't know if we even have a clue sometimes how often pride shows up in our lives. Pride was the original sin. Satan said, I should be God. I should ascend to the throne. And, and he tried to do that. And of course, it was never successful. And his pride got him banished from heaven. And he took the third of the angels with him, right? We struggle with pride. It, it comes up so often. It's very difficult to see in ourselves but it's very easy to see in other people, okay? So maybe um, think who you might see this in others and then realize it's in your heart too, okay? Let me give you some examples of pride that maybe you don't often think about. Um, there's a little booklet I, I love to use in counseling. It's called uh, From Pride to Humility, written by a teacher named uh, Dr. Stuart Scott. And, and in that book, he gives 30 manifestations of pride. 30 ways that pride can look in a Christian's life. I want to give you just a few of them just to kind of get you thinking. Anger. 
is a manifestation of pride. A proud person is often an angry person. Why? Because a person most often becomes angry when his rights, when his expectations are not being met, right? My rights and my expectations are always right. Of course they are, right? And if you don't follow them, I get angry. It's a manifestation of pride, actually. Here's another one. Perfectionism can be a manifestation of pride. People who strive for everything to be perfect often do so for recognition. Uh, Or they may do it so that they feel good about themselves. In either case, it's very self-serving and proud. I felt very convicted by that because I remember in a, a job interview one time, I told the interviewer, I'm a perfectionist. I was revealing to him my pride. Right? Here's a third one. Talking too much is an example of pride. Proud people who talk too much often do it because they think what they have to say is more important than what anyone else has to say. But Proverbs 10 says, where there are many words, sin is generally unavoidable. Try this one on. Maybe, maybe this one hurts. Huh. Pride is exhibited in being sarcastic, hurtful, or degrading. Proud people can be very unkind people. Those who belittle other people usually want to raise themselves up above others, and very often this can be quite cleverly done through jesting, and they may excuse themselves by saying, that's just the way I am. That's my personality. Here's one final one. And again, he lists 30 of these. Five was enough. I couldn't handle any (laughs) more. Voicing preferences or opinions when not asked. A proud person might not be able to keep his preferences or opinions to himself. He will offer it when not asked for. And these preferences are usually voiced without consideration for others. Wow. That is just a a small sampling of how often pride comes out of our hearts. And Paul says here, the mark of walking worthy of the calling to which we are called is that we walk in humility. I don't know about you, but I think this is why he took those first three chapters to describe to us the limitless grace of Jesus in our lives because even that one word right in the beginning of chapter four is enough to crush us if we didn't know that we had Jesus as our advocate. Humility. Because of the cross, because of Jesus Christ, I can acknowledge it. Yep, there's pride in my heart again. I repent, I confess, by the hard work of the Holy Spirit, he can begin to root it out and humility becomes this foundational virtue of my life. You can't even begin to please God without humility. How do I know that? Well, the very first beatitude, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3 says, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's a, that's a manifestation of humility. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
the first step in the Christian walk is realizing you are spiritually bankrupt. That's humility. I can't do it on my own without recognizing himself as a sinner and worthy only of God's just condemnation, one cannot become a Christian. It starts with humility. So Paul is telling us here that saints need to be completely humble uh, in their daily walks. And you know what? The truth is true saints, real saints, don't even realize that they're humble. They're just living out the grace that God has given them. Someone has said, humility is that grace that when you know you have it, you've lost it. It's like giving the person the button that says most humble person and they wear it with pride. (laughs) He's lost it, right? But here's the deal. Sometimes in our attempts not to be proud, we take on a false humility. We, we downplay our gifts. We talk badly of ourselves. We, we really kind of put ourselves on in a false effort to appear humble. I came across this rather uh, funny story that illustrates uh, false humility. It says, a young minister once stood at a Methodist conference. <laughs> of course, he wouldn't be Mennonite, right? Uh, he, he once stood at a Methodist conference. Uh, he stood to his feet and he said these words. Young minister, he said, I am against education. I don't need to read books except the Bible. I don't profess. I know nothing about literature or anything of that kind. I am just an ignorant man. But the Lord has taken me up and is using me, and I am not at all interested in schools or colleges or education. I am proud to be just what I am. An old preacher rose to his feet and said, Do I understand that the dear young brother is proud of his ignorance? If so, all I have to say is that he has a great deal to be proud of. Sometimes, trying to create false humility ends up creating pride. Is it possible to hold a conviction about the truth of Scripture in a prideful way? It is. Having a conviction about a truth of Scripture is not prideful, but it can be held in a prideful way. Pastor uh, Ligon Duncan cautions us this way. He says, what I am encouraging you is not to lose the strength of your convictions. What I am encouraging you to do is to hold tenaciously and valiantly and ferociously to the truth of God's word, but to express that in all of your life in humility towards one another so that in the way we relate to Christians who disagree with us, they see an evident gospel humility, even though they also see a tenacious conviction about the truth. Who's the perfect example of humility in all of the Bible? It's none other than Jesus Christ, right? In Philippians 2, we see the 
supreme example Paul gives of the humility of Jesus Christ who humbled himself by giving up the splendor of heaven, by giving up all the glory that he rightfully possessed there to come to earth and take on the form of a human, a servant nonetheless. And in Philippians chapter 2 in verse 8, it says, being found in human form, he humbled himself, this is Jesus, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We're called to walk in that kind of walk. True humility. We need his grace, don't we? We need his help, don't we? We need his love and his spirit, don't we? Ask him for it. He'll give that to you. So back to Ephesians 4, Paul says, we walk with all humility and we walk with gentleness. Gentleness. If you have a King James Bible, uh, your Bible says meekness there. It's not a word that we use very often in our English language. And for many people, meekness is synonymous with weakness. But that's not true. That's not what meekness means. Meekness is definitely not weakness or spinelessness. A meek person is a person who has the characteristic of power under control. It was a word that the Greeks used when they talked about a wild horse that was taken and it was tamed. It was brought under control. Had tremendous power, but it was power under control. Every now and then you'll see a little YouTube clip or maybe this happens in your home where you see this big giant dog and he's just kind of sprawled out on the floor. And then you see this little yappy dog, and he's up there in the big dog's face, and he's biting his ears, and, and he's biting his nose, and the big dog just kind of lays there and watches him. Well, you know, with one bite, that big dog could take that little thing out. But he doesn't. His power under control. He lets the little dog kind of do his thing, right? A gentle person. A meek person is slow to insist on his own rights because he realizes that in the sight of God, he has no rights except that which were secured by Jesus' grace. By his own nature, he has no rights. All of his rights were secured by Jesus. Moses was called a meek person. He took a lot of criticism. Moses took a lot of insult. He had his own sister, brother, come up against him, right? Mo Moses, Moses could take a lot, and yet he stood in the gap between God's anger and the rebellious Israelites. He, he exercised tremendous power under control, and yet he wasn't afraid to use it when he needed to. When he came down off Mount Sinai and he saw the golden calf, he used his power to break the tablets and destroy the calf and call the Israelites back into rightful worship of God. Power under control. Jesus was meek and lowly in heart, according to Matthew 11 and 29, and yet he drove the money changers out of the temple when he had to. Right? He, he was very controlled, but he had power that he would use appropriately to please God and not his own pleasure. You and I, I think, struggle with gentleness sometimes, don't we? 
we flare up when accusations come up against us. We're, we're real quick to, to take up arms if, if somebody comes at us. Dwight Pentecost tells this story of a, of a split that happened in a church. And this split was so serious that each side filed a lawsuit against the other to dispose them of their land. They totally ignored what the word of God teaches about taking each other to court. They just went ahead with it. Well, the judge threw the case out of court, and so these two warring parties took the case to church court, where it should have been in the first place. And at that church court, the judge awarded the property to one of the two factions and the losers withdrew red-faced and riotous, and of course they went and formed another church down the road, right? That's always what happens. But it was during the proceedings, during that court trial, it came out that the conflict began at a church dinner when one of the elders received a smaller slice of ham than the child who was seated next to him. True story. It's where it all started. Ended up splitting the church over it. We struggle sometimes with gentleness, don't we? Sometimes when people come at us, we, we lose control of our, our temperament. We, we lose control of our senses. We lose control of who we are in Jesus Christ. And yet Jesus asks us and calls us to be willing to suffer injury rather than to inflict injury. That's walking a walk worthy of the calling to which we've been called. Well, these things are just the beginning, right? These, all these first six verses talk about what it means to have unity in the body of Christ. And, and we'll get to more of them the next time that we're here in the book of Ephesians. But for this week, I want to challenge you with two things, two challenges. Number one, do you struggle with pride or a lack of gentleness in your own life? If you do, will you repent of that this morning? Remember who you are in Jesus Christ. Remember the grace that you've been shown. Remember that there was nothing that you did to bring yourself into right relationship with God. God had to come to you. He had to provide something for you that you could not provide on your own. And so, Remember that the great love that God has shown to you. Remember, you're called now to walk in humility. You're called to walk in gentleness. And number two, is your walk balanced during the week? Or do you just put on a pretty good show on Sunday morning? Maybe you need to go back to one of your coworkers, or maybe one of your classmates or one of your family members and maybe you need to admit the, admit to them you know what i haven't been a very good testimony of jesus to you i put on a good show on sunday morning but when it comes monday i don't live this out and maybe you need to confess that to them and ask them to forgive you for not walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called can you do those two things this week can you tackle those two things this week? By God's grace, he will empower you to live out what he's called you to be by the grace of the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ. Why don't you stand with me?
We'll pray. Ask God to help us to do that this week. All right? God, thank you, first, that you preserved chapters one through three before you ever got to number four. Thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the gift of grace, for mercy, for love. Thank you for pricking us in our soul, convicting us of our need for Jesus. Thank you for giving us life and awakening us to the, f- uh, to the fact that we need a Savior. Thank you for faith to believe in you. And now, Father, I pray that while all of that is true and positionally we find ourselves in this family of God with this new identity of Christian, I pray now that you would help us to live that out, to help us to walk in humility, to walk in gentleness. Help others to see us walking in good works so that we can glorify you who resides in heaven. And Father, for places where we have failed in doing that, for places where we have exhibited pride, for places where we have not been meek and gentle, will you forgive us again? (laughs) Will you remind us that that's not who we are? And will you give us the power of your spirit that we talked about last week to walk in obedience? We need you. We need your grace. Thank you for the assurance that we have in your son. And out of that assurance, help us to walk in response to you in obedience to your son, Jesus Christ. I pray in his name. Amen.